Good morning. It's great to be with you. Welcome to In-Town Presbyterian Church. Uh, We are entering into the season that Christians have traditionally referred to as ordinary time. We're moving from the time of of Easter and then Pentecost last week into ordinary time, which stretches till Advent. So most of the year is ordinary, mundane, nitty-gritty life. And so what we're going to do kicking off this season is to look at the Ten Commandments, look at the liberty of obedience. What does it mean to live in the ordinary time? What does it mean to live out the call of the gospel, the law of God in ordinary circumstances, in everyday life? What does God expect from ordinary people? We're going to start this morning by looking at the first commandment. I've entitled this sermon, The Liberty of Obedience. How, is the, how do those two things coincide? How can we be free and yet obey? We're going to take a look at that by looking at Deuteronomy chapter 5, 1 through 7. Moses summoned all Israel and said, Hear, Israel, the decrees and laws I declare in your hearing today. Learn them and be sure to follow them. The Lord our God made a covenant with us at Horeb. It was not with our ancestors that the Lord made this covenant, but with us and with all of us who are alive here today. The Lord spoke to you face to face out of the fire on the mountain. At that time, I stood between the Lord and you to declare to you the word of the Lord, because you were afraid of the fire and did not go up to the mountain. And he said, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, we pray that you would help us to understand your law rightly, that we would understand it in gospel context, that it would not become a millstone around our neck, that it would not become a heavy burden, but that we would be liberated by the work of Jesus, that we would be able to see these commands as pointing to delight, as pointing to life, as pointing to fulfillment. Father, we pray that as we take on this first commandment, that you would let us see our sin, that we would see how we have forsaken you for so many other gods and yet be drawn back to you yet again by the Redeemer, by Jesus, who has done all of the work that is necessary for us to do. Father, we pray in his name. Amen. One of the most embarrassing things that happens to you as a parent, as a father, is when you get in trouble with your kids, for doing something alongside your kids. And a couple of times this has happened in my life. There was one a few years ago when we were in California, and we had, there was probably six or seven neighborhood kids that would come to our house. We would go there, our kids would go to their house. And so one summer day, I had gotten off work, and we decided to have a big war with lemons from each other's yard. And so I was out there with like seven neighborhood kids, and they were across in their yard. We were in our yard, and I had Nick and Oliver with me, and we were just chunking these lemons at each other. They were blowing up and destroying. I mean, it was going on for probably 30 minutes, and everyone had lemon juice all over them. And the mother of two of the kids that we were playing with came out and started screaming at the kids, what are you doing with my lemons? And of course, I'm standing there in broad daylight, and I feel like a seven-year-old all of a sudden, feel like a total fool. I'm thinking, why? We're having so much fun. Why would you inflict these rules on our fun? 
The other day, a few months ago, I was leaving Target, and we had done some shopping, and I had bought some high-bouncing balls for the kids, and so we walked out, and they were bouncing the balls through the parking lot. And you know, at Target, they have, when you walk out, these huge concrete stalls that are about four feet tall where they keep their carts, the shopping carts, and so it's pretty tight fit. So I thought it'd be funny to take one of the boys, you know, high-bouncing balls and throw it in that stall in the very back to where it'd bounce around and they'd have to then go retrieve it. And it would be funny because at that moment it was their prized possession, you know, so I'm going to chunk it in there. And so we laughed and he was like, oh, dad. And then we figured out, well, it's actually hard to get back there. And so I'm trying to weasel back between the carts and the stall and the kids are climbing up on the walls and we're just having a great time. And the security guard pulls up. He's like, what are you guys doing here? Don't you see the sign on the wall? You can't do this. It's dangerous, you know. And I'm thinking, come on. We're not causing any trouble. You know, we're having fun. I know it's, you know, printed there in big letters, don't climb on the wall. But isn't that, isn't that to cover your insurance policy? That's not for, like, me, right? I'm just having a good time with my kids. And here you come with these rules. You're going to squash my fun, squelch my fun, and make me look like an idiot in front of my kids. Well, isn't that how we think of rules in general? Is that how we should think about the Old Testament? That here is God moving into our lives to squash our fun, to squelch whatever fun we want to have. Are they bureaucratic rules that just kind of isolate us from the rest of the world? Are they arbitrary? Are they situational? Have they been put away because now we are in the New Testament age? How are Christians to respond to the Ten Commandments. We generally have a a fairly negative connotation of law in the modern West, that law is restrictive, it's prohibitive. We think about law in terms of curfews or speed limits or tax deadlines. They're the the burden of the law. It's the, the weight of the law. It's negative. It's restrictive and prohibitive. And because we honor choice and individual freedom above almost anything else, that we recoil at the idea that someone or something outside of us could tell us what to do, could restrict our freedom, could bind us in some way. And into that context, into our own hearts that want individual freedom and choice, and into a culture that really devalues law or thinks about it negatively, God says, you shall have no other gods but me and then gives a longer list. And in fact, what Moses began to read here goes on through chapter 26. Can you imagine that, sitting there with your family in church, basically, and listening to 26 chapters read? And then you don't have anything to take home with and, you know, review your notes. You just have to remember it, 26 chapters. But here we have an encapsulation of what God expects of ordinary people. And the first one is, you shall have no other gods. We're going to look just at two things quickly, the nature of biblical law, the nature of the first commandment, and then the power. Where do we get the power to live by these commandments? Where does that come from? Are we just supposed to generate it ourselves, or does God in some way empower us to follow the law that he gives us? So nature and power. First of all, nature. There was a book written, a study done of few years back called The Soul Searching, The Religious and Spiritual Lives of American Teenagers, and it was written by Christian Smith and Melinda Denton. And they coin a term in this book regarding the life of 
American youth and their spiritual lives that they call their basic outlook is moralistic therapeutic deism. Moralistic therapeutic deism. And here are the basic tenets of this that is fairly widespread among American youth. One is that a God exists that created and ordered the world in some way, and he watches over human life. Secondly, that God wants people to be good and nice and fair to each other. Thirdly, that the central goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about oneself. And fourthly, that God does not need to be particularly involved in one's life except when he is needed to resolve a problem. Sort of the lowest common denominator of religious belief. It's not that difficult. There's very few demands in moralistic therapeutic deism, and it's frankly not all that interesting. Why are these the rules that we choose to follow? It's also not just youth that have these ideas, that this is the basic religious outlook. In fact, this is widespread across the spectrum of age. I've been reading a book called The Nun Zone, written by a group of professors, mostly in Oregon and Washington. Nun Zone uh, corresponds to the census block, where you check off what religious affiliation you have. And there's more people in the Pacific Northwest that check none than any other region, according to the census. Mark Shibley of Southern Oregon University says he describes the Pacific Northwest as a spiritual marketplace where individuals in their quest for self-fulfillment actively construct religious identities that are malleable and multifaceted, often blurring the boundaries that separate one faith tradition from another. That's our context. Moralistic therapeutic deism or just sort of this syncretistic view of I'm going to take some, some elements from this religion, some from this practice, and I'm going to put it all together in a way that makes me feel good about myself. He uses an example of Powell's bookstore that 10 years ago, about 10 years ago, they rearranged their religious section. And where it once was Judaism, Christianity, Islam, Buddhism, all of the major world religions, they took that label off and now it's just a spiritual section. And it has any number of things that are kind of quasi-spiritual, that they, alongside Christianity, Judaism, are holistic health regimens that have something to do with the body, also with the mind. Neo-pagan titles, earth-based religions, all of these are kind of thrown into the mix as all being spiritual options. There's an array of choices, a buffet for you to choose from. And the spirit team at Powell's manages this section, serving up kind of a smorgasbord of anything you want that you could consider spiritual. Now, what's going on here? Well, Obviously, we have jettisoned this idea in our culture of a transcendental truth, that there's one truth that is ascendant above all others because that is oppressive, it's narrow-minded, it's arrogant to say that. But there's something deeper going on than just that because until recently, there were two options. You could be secular or you could be spiritual, but now you can have both. You can have your cake and eat it too. You can be secular and spiritual at the same time. What's driving the demand side of this spiritual marketplace is a a deification of the self. It's that I am to be catered to by God, that I am to be catered to by spirituality, that spirituality has no right to make any demands upon me other than those which make me self-fulfilled and happy. If there's a creator, a transcendent force, it caters to the individual. 
And so what we're doing in our spirituality is canonizing the spiritual free choice. And we can pick and choose. It's almost a limitless array. It's syncretistic and it's polytheistic. Now, not only is that the situation in modern Pacific Northwest, that's actually the situation that the Israelites were in at the moment they, had, they received this law. This part in Deuteronomy that we read is actually a covenant renewal that after 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, after God had liberated them from the Egyptians, and then they sinned. And he said, I will curse you and you will wander around for 40 years until this generation dies off. Now, as they're about to go into the land of Canaan, he updates the law. And it's almost word for word what was in Exodus 20. But there are some critical changes that are contextualized for what's going on now. They are leaving Egypt. They have been rescued from Egypt and its pantheon of gods into now Canaan, which is polytheistic. It's the exact same situation that God's people then found themselves in that we find ourselves in. How are we to live in a very syncretistic, polytheistic culture? How do we, how do we talk about obedience? How do we receive law? How do we receive demands from our spirituality, from God? as it were. And how do we talk about that as a church in a culture that that makes no sense whatsoever? Now, this will become a little bit more important next week, but you would expect that the first commandment would be, there are no other gods, therefore worship me. But it's not that. It's, you shall have no other gods. In the Exodus account in chapter 20, Moses has been up on the mountain, and he has, been, he has encountered God's thunderous holiness. And he comes down to the people, and he says, this is what God says. Not that I am the only true God. All of these other gods are fictitious. He says, instead, I am better. I am more worthy. I am more faithful. I am more loving than all of those other gods. The first commandment is not primarily restrictive, but it's liberating. Just as he said, I liberated you from Egypt. Now, let me liberate you from all of these quasi-gods that hold on to you, that have enslaved you. Let me liberate you from that. That's the first commandment. It's not primarily restrictive, but primary, primarily liberating. These other gods mimic me, but they cannot deliver. deliver. I demand your worship your fidelity, your devotion, and as you get it, you will receive life. You will receive liberation. You will receive joy. God is saying, I know your context, Israel. There are a lot of other competing options. There are a lot of other spiritual entities out there. There are a lot of other things that are claiming ascendancy and are saying, follow me. I know your context, but choose me. I am the one who made you who has made all things. I am the God who rescued you out of Egypt, the God who loves me. Have no other gods but me. In Psalm 95, God says, I am the great God, the great king above all gods. What he is saying is that in your polytheistic context, compare all of these other options to me. I love you. I redeem you. I pay for your sin." I rescue you. I am eternally faithful. Now, we think freedom is the complete lack of external restrictions on choices. 
that liberty is being liberated from any rule that we don't want to follow. But think about eating for a moment. Think about your diet. If you're free from any restriction whatsoever, you can eat until you're sick every day. If you do that, then you'll die early, you won't be happy, and your body will break down. Being free from rules in the realm of eating is not liberating, it's enslaving. You become enslaved to certain types of food, and you kill yourself over time. And so what you choose to do is you say, though I want that third piece of cake, I'm going to restrict my choices. I'm going to go contrary to my desires because I know in the long run that immediate gratification will not lead to life. It will not lead to health. It will not lead to happiness. It will enslave me and kill me. And so what I do is I oppose my will. I choose to go against my own choices. I choose to limit my choices. And in so doing, I'm liberated. In so doing and having fewer choices, I'm actually setting setting myself up for happiness. Freedom, liberty comes from having our will opposed. It comes not from having no restrictions, but from having the right restrictions, finding the right guidelines. To truly live, we have to say no to ourselves at certain time, and to truly live spiritually, we have to allow God to say no to us at times. And we understand, we, be, we know we are obeying when we begin to do things that God says to do that we don't think presently are in our best interests. When he begins to oppose our will and we begin to bend our will to his, that's obedience. It's not following when there's no cost. It's following when there is a cost. When God says you should do or you should not do, and we do it even though it goes against what we think is in the interest of our immediate gratification. What the Ten Commandments are saying, among other things, is that you were made by someone. You were created by someone. And that someone, God, knows you and knows your world and is willing to challenge your will, is willing to restrict your choices for your good so that you can truly live, so that you can be liberated. Now, This is sort of counterintuitive, but it also makes sense as we think about relationships. If you see a parent telling, challenging a child's will, saying, no, you will not run with scissors in the house or anywhere else. You You see a parent telling a child, no, when you get angry, you can't punch the person in the face. You see, they're giving them less choices. They're restricting their rules. They're restricting their behavior. But we don't say, oh, that child will never find themselves. They'll never find their self-esteem and so forth. We think, no, that's good. That's healthy for the parent to restrict the choices of the child. If you know that a spouse demands fidelity from their husband or wife, we don't think, oh, how old-fashioned, how oppressive, how narrow-minded. We think, no. That's exactly right because it's for the good of the person. It's for the good of the relationship. The relationship will not survive at all if there are no rules, if there's not a commitment, if there's not a covenant. That's what's going on in the Ten Commandments. The best interest of the relationship between us and God lies in a set of rules, a set of laws to abide by. And we need to see that the happiness and joy of God and of us rests in us being faithful to those rules. That's the nature 
of the first commandment. It's like a marital covenant. It's the rules of relationship. The first commandment is a call into relationship. It's not primarily restrictive, but it's primarily liberating. It calls us into relationship, and therefore obedience is not the end itself. It's a means to an end. Obedience is the means of relating to God, of being intimate with Him, of becoming more like Him. It's the foundation of a truly loving relationship. What do you do in a loving relationship? You bow your demands to the other person. In a loving relationship, you restrict your choices. You oppose your own will in order to give yourself to the other person, in order to serve the other person for the good of the relationship. This is the very nature of a loving relationship. Otherwise, it's just an arrangement. It's just two roommates that are trying to avoid each other and get along without creating too much friction. No, a loving relationship has rules to abide by that represent fidelity, that represent love, that represent self-giving. And us, as the loving party, the person that is trying to love the other person, we restrict our choices. We bow our will to the other person. The first commandment demands fidelity, not because obedience accumulates credit in your account or makes God love you more, but it's that the relationship demands it. Now, that's the nature of the first commandment, the nature of obedience, why we obey. But how? What about the power? Why should we obey? And once we choose that God is indeed the great king above all kings, how do we want to serve him? How do we long to fulfill his law? Well, if you start with verse 6, notice I started with verse 1. If you start with verse 6 and then you read the Ten Commandments the, in isolation from the rest, it will, it'll kill you. It'll wear you out. You have to see the preamble. The preamble is where the power lies. In the prologue of our passage, it said, I have been In summary, I have been a faithful king. I have loved you. Now have no other gods but me. In the Exodus passage in 20, it says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. That's the preamble to the law. That's the gospel at the head of obligation. You see, he gives compassion and rescue before he gives demands. He gives gives indicatives about who he is and what he has done for you and why he is worthy to be followed followed before he gives imperatives of what you should do. The command follows grace. So the reason for obedience is not to earn salvation. It's not to earn his favor. It's not to gain his love. Instead, it's the appropriate response to God's love. It's the appropriate response to God's rescue, to his redemption, to his liberating the people of God out of Egypt. That's the preamble. That's the foundation, the basis, the power of following the law. When you see that the one person in the universe who could have every right to demand your whole life, your whole existence, your every sacrifice for no other reason than the fact that he is God, when you see that that one person that could demand that chooses instead to serve you, chooses instead to initiate relationship with you, It changes the way that you relate to the commands. He takes initiative. He enters into relationship. He takes on the responsibility first to love, to care, to forgive you. That's the foundation. That comes first, before the command, before obedience. 
in the middle of the last century, archaeologists began to dig up all of these treaties in the ancient Near East. They were from the Hittites, the Amalekites, and all over the Mediterranean basin. And what they found was that they, they all had something in common, that they, they were called suzerain vassal treaties, which was a treaty between a conquering king and a conquered people, or between a king and their own people. That there was the, the important distinction was that one was in power. One had the power to make the rules, and the other had to follow it. And they all had these different ingredients that they all seemed to look very similar. And what biblical scholars began to notice is how similar the Ten Commandments were to these suzerain vassal treaties, in that what God was doing was he was choosing a treaty form that his people would be familiar with, that his people understood, and then changing it in very specific and very important ways. Because though they were very similar, that there were demands and stipulations that the suzerain, the Lord, put upon the people, and also obligations that the Lord takes upon himself, that those things were similar, what changed was that it was on the basis of a loving relationship. It wasn't on the basis of power. It wasn't on the basis that I have conquered you, now you must submit and follow these laws. It was on the basis of relationship, of love. The God, the Lord, the suzerain that was above all other kings, instead of placing demands and saying, you will, he says, I love you, so follow me. And the other distinction was that instead of them being bound to political boundaries and geographic boundaries and time boundaries or chronological boundaries, this was eternal, that God's covenants in the, in the Bible are eternal covenants, that transcend political boundaries, transcend even time. The basic means of relationship of are, is the law of God, and that these, these are the basic ingredients of intimacy. It's how you enjoy Him, how you relate to Him, how you enjoy life in the world that He made. The law of God is not an arbitrary fence around your behavior. It's not to squelch your fun but it's the means by which you know God and enjoy Him forever. It pushes back in a very hard, very difficult way against our presumption that freedom lies in being our own Lord and Master. George MacDonald, who is a Scottish poet and author, says that that idea of being our own Lord and Master is not the way to happiness. It's actually hell on earth. He says that hell is saying, I am my own, and I can tell what is right for me because it's completely solitary. You are the king, and everyone else is the subject. They are there to serve you. It's a terrible basis for relationship. You can't have a real relationship unless you're willing to submit your will to someone else. But notice that God doesn't demand anything of you that he doesn't do himself. George MacDonald said, did he not thus lay down his life, persuading us to lay down ours? Has not his very life by which he died passed into those who have received him and recreated theirs, so that now they live with the life which alone is life? Did he not foil and slay evil, letting all the waves and billows of its horrid sea break upon him, go over him, and die without rebound? Did they spend their rage, fall defeated, and cease? Do you see what he's saying? 
is that God is making great demands of you, but the obligations that he takes upon himself are far ascendant, are far more grave, are far more difficult, and far more painful because he is saying, even when you don't live up to the obligations, even though I am God and I have every right to demand your life, when you break my law, I will pay for your offense. I will forgive your offense. I will re-enter into relationship with you. That's the very nature of Deuteronomy 5, is that the first generation, Moses' generation, sinned, and God did not give up on his people. God came back and said, now I will take you into the land. Let's renew our covenant. Let's renew our vows. You have broken it. I have been faithful. I took you out of Egypt. I fed you in the desert. I have been a good father, a good Lord, a good king. Now, would you obey me this time? And so he reprints the law. He renews the covenant so that this this generation, these people will know how to live better, how to live in a more intimate way with God, how to become more like him, how to live rightly in his world. God lets our sin fall on him. The redeeming God sends the perfect redeemer to pay for your and my disobedience, to uphold our end for us. We have all these stipulations that we are to abide by, and even when we don't, God says, I will hold up not just my end, but your end as well. I will obey where you disobey. And that's the point of the Sermon on the Mount. That's the point of Jesus' gospel ministry, as he is saying, everything that is demanded of by you in the law, I have fulfilled. I have won for you. I have taken your sin on my back. I have become what you were not able to do. Now live in liberty, live in freedom, live in grace. Follow, not because you have to, but because you can. Follow out of gratitude. Follow because I have rescued you, I have redeemed you, I have loved you eternally. We should see as we meditate on the Ten Commandments, we should see Jesus and his gospel more clearly, because as we see the extent of obedience that is required, we will see how frequently that we fall short, and we will thus be able to see how rich and long and deep and high is the gospel, is the mercy of God. God submits his absolute authority, his right to demand allegiance and fealty from you, and he gives it. He says, I will bow my will to you. I will give up everything to have you. I will give up all of my rights, my privileges first. Now, follow my lead. Let your will be crossed. Give up your demands. Give up your independence so that you can be wedded to me, so that you can experience what true life is. That's what Jesus does as he comes and gives up everything. He gives up all of his rights He gives up all of his demands so that he can have you and says, then follow me gladly. Obey, not to earn my love, but obey because I love you fully and eternally. Let's pray now. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for these commandments. Thank you that you give us not just law, but you give us grace. Father, help us to obey gladly, willingly, fully, And Lord, as you begin to change our lives, Lord, give us joy. Give us delight as we begin to bend our will to yours. Let our obedience not be a turnoff to the watching world, but be 
an aroma of Jesus, be attractive that it is something different, that it is countercultural, that it is counterintuitive. Father, I pray you would give us power to live out a, a life of obedience. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.